all of our children had their names before they were born. In fact, when it came to our first child, our son, Claire and I were married in July of 98, and we went on a honeymoon. We came back. We loaded up the U-Haul in North Florida and headed up to the Memphis area. And on that drive to this area, we picked out a name for our first son, five years before he was born. We loved the name and set her on the name five years before he would even be born which sounds impressive until you compare it to Jesus. Did you know that Jesus had some names, some titles, picked out for him over 700 years before he was born to the Virgin Mary? And we see this in Isaiah chapter 9. So turn there with me, Isaiah chapter 9. We are beginning a four-part series that will take us to Christmas Eve Sunday that is focused on the names of Christ given in this ancient prophecy. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. I'm going to ask you this morning if you're physically able to please stand with me in honor of the reading of God's Word which is truth with no mixture of error. How about that music this morning? Is that a blessing? Isn't God good? Uh, It's just a a sampling of what you'll hear tonight, so I want to encourage you to be back tonight at 6 o'clock for our Christmas musical as we just gather together and just exalt Jesus together. It's going to be incredible. Hope you'll be back. Bring somebody with you. I uh, anticipate this room being full of folks tonight, and so we hope you'll make every effort to get back. Uh, Incredible, incredible uh, ministry and message and music this morning. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, the Bible says, For to us a child is born. To us... A son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called. We see four names here. We'll take one per week this month. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. Let's pray together this morning. Father, we come to you in Jesus' name, and we are so grateful for this opportunity to gather as a faith family and to turn our mind's attention and heart's affection and will's allegiance to you. Lord, you are the reason that we're here. You are the center of attention. May your name be exalted in our midst. And as we, Lord, come face to face with our triune God in worship, I pray that we will be changed. Father, as your word goes forth, would you accompany the preaching of your word with the power of your spirit? That our eyes might be opened, that we might be transformed. And help us to just lift up in these moments the finished work of Christ, which is our only hope. Help us to celebrate the glory of the gospel. And Lord, we'll thank you for that grace. Lord, I pray a prayer this morning that is a bold prayer. 
I ask that we will so encounter you this morning that we will leave this place different. Leaving, Lord, today knowing we have met with the living God. Lord, you work in that way, in our hearts, in our families, in our lives. Lord, transform us for your glory. And we ask and pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. The book of Isaiah was written about 700 years before Christ walked upon the earth. And many parts of this book are dark in that God was speaking through his prophet Isaiah to warn the nation of Israel, the nation of Judah, of coming judgment through some foreign nations like Assyria and Babylon. Because God's people had turned their back to him and engaged in idolatry and disobedience, God was sending judgment. So much of the book of Isaiah, uh, we see these dark clouds of impending judgment. But every so often, the bright rays of hope shine through. And the hope we see in the pages of Isaiah is based upon one whom God would send. The, the Bible is clear. Even though God was going to judge his people in a devastating manner, he would not make a full end to the Jewish people. He would keep a remnant together because one day God had a plan through his people to send a Messiah. And the book of Isaiah gives us some insight into this Messiah, his nature, his character, his mission. In fact, Isaiah tells us the manner of the Messiah's birth. Over 700 years before Jesus Christ was born, we're told he would be born of a virgin in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. And we see that prophecy fulfilled in Matthew chapter 1, where he's born to the virgin Mary. We see in Isaiah 53 the reason for his birth, the reason that God would send him to us. The Bible says in verse 6 of that 53rd chapter that all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid upon him, his son, the iniquity of us all. In other words, God sent his son so he could be a substitute, taking the penalty that we as sinners deserve. And so this one who would be born of the Virgin Mary would come ultimately to be a redeemer. That was the reason for his birth. And not only would this one sent from God come to redeem, he would come to reign. And that's what this ninth chapter is about. It's a, a picture of the reign of this one Messiah sent from God. In fact, it says in verse 6, the government shall be upon his shoulder. It says in verse 7, of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So this passage tells us the one whom God would send would be a forever king. He would rule and his reign would never come to an end. So this one whom God would send was coming to redeem and to reign. And here in chapter 9, 
God wants his people to understand there was coming a day when their darkness would be transformed into light. Their gloom would be transformed into joy and their ungodly leaders would be eclipsed by a great king. And in the midst of this passage, we find one of the great messianic prophecies of the Old Testament. One of my favorite verses in the Bible, chapter 9, verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulder. His name, his name shall be called. And we see these four names or titles. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. You might say that Isaiah chapter 9 verse 6 is the prophecy of the Son of God and the Son of Man who is a forever king. That's what this verse is about. And the four titles found in this verse uh, foreshadow what kind of king he would be. They needed to know this king whom God would send, who would reign forever, has attributes. He has a character in nature that you need to understand. And the first name, the first title we get to is Wonderful Counselor. Literally in the Hebrew, this phrase can be translated, Wonder of a Counselor. Wonder of a Counselor. And so we want to dig into that first name, and glean some truth from that name. So what I want to do this morning is I want to give you two truths about Jesus found in this title. Two truths about Jesus found in this title. Number one, Jesus is breathtaking wonder. Jesus is breathtaking wonder. It says in verse 6, To us a child is born, to us a son is given, Skipping forward, his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. 700 years before Jesus Christ was born of the Virgin Mary, we see this name applied to Christ. Wonderful Counselor. Now that word wonderful is the Hebrew word Pele. It it speaks of something with an extraordinary nature, making it mysterious or difficult to comprehend. So when this word is applied to the Son who would be given we see that the one who would be given, Jesus Christ, has a nature that is extraordinary. It's beyond us. It's more than we can comprehend or wrap our minds around. The word translated wonderful could be translated miracle. It could be translated something marvelous or majestic. It's a powerful word and it's applied to the son who would be born of the Virgin Mary. And so we learn from this word, wonderful, that Jesus is breathtaking wonder. He is transcendent, he is glorious, he is majestic, and the the reality of his nature, the reality of his attributes ought to take our breath away. So how do you know that? Well, in 1 Kings chapter 10, there's a very interesting story about the Queen of Sheba, And the queen of Sheba had heard about the splendor of Solomon's kingdom. So she travels from North Africa all the way to Israel so she can see for herself how great this king named Solomon really is. And the Bible says that when she saw his wealth, when she saw the expanse of his empire, when she saw his wisdom... The Bible says 
there was no breath left in her. In other words, she was so amazed by Solomon, it took her breath away. Now, what makes that so interesting is Jesus makes reference to this story. In Matthew chapter 12, Jesus speaks of the queen of Sheba encountering Solomon. And he speaks of how amazed she was by Solomon. And then Jesus says, something greater than Solomon is here. In other words, if Solomon, this earthly king, was so impressive that he took the queen of Sheba's breath away, how much more should Jesus take our breath away? How much more should we be amazed by Christ? Yes, Solomon was impressive. But Jesus is the king of kings, and he ought to take our breath away. If Solomon invoked such wonder, how much more should Christ invoke wonder in our hearts? Let me ask you this question. When was the last time Jesus took your breath away? When was the last time you thought seriously about the person and nature and work and majesty and glory of King Jesus? Are you impressed with Jesus? Are you, are you amazed by Jesus? This word wonderful suggests that the child who would be born would be transcendent and marvelous to encounter. That's what this word means in Isaiah 9-6. That everyone who would truly encounter this, this Christ would encounter him as wonder. And majesty. And so we learn from this name, Wonderful Counselor, that Jesus is breathtaking wonder. Not only that, Jesus is astonishing wisdom. Jesus is astonishing wisdom. Look back with me in verse 6. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. Wonderful counselor. That word counselor is the Hebrew word yoes. It means one who advises. One who gives counsel. One who dispenses wisdom. One who offers guidance. That's what this word means. Which leads to this question. What qualifies Jesus to offer counsel? In other words... Is he a trustworthy counselor? Now remember, this is written 700 years before the time of Christ. And the people of Israel encountered many different types of kings. Most of them were wicked kings and unwise kings. So they had really no confidence in a coming ruler. They needed to understand the one whom God would ultimately send, who would reign forever, is a good ruler. He's a trustworthy ruler. He is a wonderful counselor. But how do we know that Jesus, who rules and reigns, is a counselor who is trustworthy? Well, let me answer that question. First of all, as fully God, Jesus is omniscient. Jesus is omniscient. That word simply means that Jesus knows everything. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 20, 
the Bible says, for whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. The Bible is clear. Jesus Christ is God. We're going to talk about the deity of Christ next week. But he's God, and as God, he possesses the attribute of omniscience. He knows everything. Isaiah 46, verses 9 and 10, the Bible says, For I am God, there is no other. I am God, there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. The Bible says that God knows the end of the begin- from the beginning. In other words, God is never wondering what's going to happen next. Adrian Rogers used to say, has it ever occurred to you that nothing ever occurs to God? He knows it all. The end from the beginning. And, and theologians speak of the simple act of his knowing. What do they mean by the simple act of his knowing? They mean that God is not striving for knowledge. He simply has knowledge. It's his in totality. He has perfect knowledge always inherently. Wayne Grudem, the theologian, writes this. This means that God is always fully aware of everything. If he should wish to tell us the number of grains of sand on the seashore or the number of stars in the sky, he would not have to count them all quickly like some kind of giant computer, nor would he have to call the number to mind because it was something he had not thought of about for some time. Rather, he always knows all things at once. All of these facts and all other things that he knows are always fully present in his consciousness. Isn't that amazing? Jesus is not striving for knowledge. He's not trying to acquire knowledge. He has knowledge. He is knowledge. He knows everything. It's just who he is. You ever called somebody a know-it-all? Now, when you call somebody a know-it-all, it's not a compliment, right? It's a, it's a pejorative. You're, you're, you're trying to demean them. And, and what you mean when you call somebody a know-it-all is they think they're a know-it-all, but they don't know it all, so they're not a know-it-all. Right? Listen to me. With reverence, you and I can call Jesus this morning a know-it-all. Because he really does know it all. And that is an awesome attribute. He is all-knowing. So, so when you go to a counselor, you want to know that they know what you're going to them to gain counsel about, right? If you go and take your taxes to someone, you want to know that they understand the tax code and, and how to navigate that, right? I mean, you want to know they have some expertise in the area you're seeking counsel in. Well, listen to me. Jesus has that expertise because he knows everything, He's a wonderful counselor. So Jesus knows everything as God. And and secondly, Jesus acts with perfect wisdom. Perfect wisdom. Wisdom is the right application of his perfect knowledge. In other words, Jesus always does what is right and what is best. Psalm 119 says, God is good and he does good. The old hymn, one of my favorite hymns, All the Way My Savior Leads Me, says... Jesus doeth all things well. That's wisdom. Jesus knows everything, and he always rightly uses that knowledge for what's best and what is good and what is righteous. Always. Now, you understand, don't you, that you can know something in your head and then act foolishly because you don't bring that knowledge into play, right? 
In other words, you can ignore what you know and do something stupid, right? To, to act rightly based upon the knowledge you have, that's what the Bible calls wisdom. Based upon what I know, now I'm going to behave appropriately according to that knowledge. Listen to me. Jesus never blows it when it comes to the right application of his knowledge. He always acts, he always rules and reigns with perfect wisdom. And we see his wisdom all around us. For example, we see his wisdom in creation. Psalm 104, verse 24, the Bible says, O Lord, how manifold are your works in wisdom, Have you made them all? The earth is full of your creatures. When you look around and see the diversity and complexity and the beauty of the created order, you stand back and say, wow, God did all of that. And how did God do it? How did God create the beauty and splendor of the universe? The cosmos, this earth on which we live, the Bible says he did it by wisdom. Which gives us some insight when it says that all things were made through Jesus. He's the agent through whom God created the universe. And he did it all with perfect wisdom. So we look around and see his wisdom in creation. Secondly, we see his wisdom in redemption. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 24, the Bible says, But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, the wisdom of God. In other words, when, regardless of your background, when you encounter Christ as your Lord and Savior, you are experiencing the wisdom of God in that He has provided for you a way to be saved. It goes on to say in verse 30, Because of Him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God righteousness and sanctification and redemption. If you are saved today, you are a recipient of God's perfect, wise plan to provide for you a Redeemer who would forgive you of your sins and reconcile you to a holy God, right? Only God could put into place a plan, like the plan we see unfold in the Bible, a plan of salvation found in His Son, Like the way that John Piper says it, he writes, The wisdom of God devised a way for the love of God to deliver sinners from the wrath of God while not compromising the righteousness of God. Only God can can conceive and execute a plan of redemption like the one we see in the Bible. And so as we experience the joy of salvation, the joy of knowing God, the joy of having our sins washed away, we are basking in the reality that God is wise. He has made a way for us to be saved, right? So we see His wisdom in creation. We see His wisdom in redemption. Third, we see His wisdom in the working out of His plan. God has a perfect plan and He executes it perfectly. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 7 through 10 In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom, there it is, in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will, according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. Here's the plan. To unite all things in Him 
things in heaven and things on earth. You know what that verse means? God has a plan so that when the dust of human history settles, everything, listen, everything points to Christ. All things are united in His name. And there's coming a day, the Bible says, when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And here's what God is doing in the world right now. God is in perfect wisdom weaving everything together for that day. It all culminates in Jesus getting the glory. He takes the good, the bad, and he weaves it all together so that ultimately we will all, with our mouths, proclaim the greatness and the majesty of Christ. That's his plan. And the Bible says he's executing that plan with wisdom. He's working it all together. He's figuring it all out. Aren't you glad you don't have to figure it out? God's got it all. He's not figuring it out. He has it planned, and he's executing it perfectly. He knows everything, and so he's got it covered. And so we see his wisdom in creation and redemption. We see his wisdom in the working out of his plan. Jesus Christ is perfect wisdom. Wonderful counselor. So let me ask you a question. Is Jesus qualified to be a counselor? He knows everything. And he acts perfectly according to that knowledge. I would submit he is worthy to be a counselor. That's the kind of king that he is. Which leads to this question. How should we respond to this king? How should we respond to this king? What does this mean for the lives of the people sitting in this room right now? What are the implications of the reality that Jesus is a wonderful Counselor, Let me give you four, four responses to this king. Number one, behold your king perfect in knowledge and wisdom. Behold your king perfect in knowledge and wisdom. Whenever you see the word behold in the Bible, and it's found in the Bible a lot, uh, God's word is trying to get your attention. The word behold means pause. And hone in to see what's being said here as vital and important. And you and I, this Christmas season, if we're going to really get at the true meaning of Christmas, we need to behold Christ. That means that we, we take time to gaze at Him We take time to stand in awe of Him. We take time to be amazed by Him. And if you go through Christmas and you don't take time to behold our wonderful Counselor, you're missing what Christmas is ultimately all about. You're missing it. Behold your King. Perfect in knowledge and wisdom. Be amazed by Jesus. Here's what I hope for you. I hope that this Christmas season is the best Christmas season you've ever had. Not because you had some wonderful family gatherings, even though I hope your family gatherings are wonderful. That's important. And not because 
you gave, you know, just a perfect gift to your kids or your grandkids or received a great gift this year, even though I hope that you enjoy the gifts you get and give for Christmas. But I hope this is the best Christmas you've ever experienced because you simply take time to behold. You take some time just to meditate on the person and the work and the attributes and the glory and the transcendence and the greatness and the majesty and the power and the breathtaking wonder and perfect wisdom of Christ. And and if you'll take time to behold, I promise you Christmas will be totally different. Maybe than in years past. So behold your king, perfect in knowledge and wisdom. Number two, how should we respond to this king? Worship your king. He is a worthy ruler. Again, 700 years before the time of Christ, the listeners of Isaiah's message didn't really know what a worthy ruler looked like. I mean, they had some kings that had some bright moments, but a lot of them that had bright moments didn't finish well. And they're wondering, okay, God's going to send a great king who will reign forever. What kind of king will he be? And he's saying, this is the kind of king he will be, a wonderful counselor. In other words, he is worthy of your attention. He is worthy of your worship. I love the Christmas narratives found in Matthew and in Luke. And who doesn't love the story in Matthew chapter 2 about the wise men? These important people from the East, we don't know a lot about them, but they knew some things about Jesus. And there's some mystery as to how they knew what they knew. I believe that these wise men had been studying the Hebrew Scriptures, and when they saw a special sign in the heavens, a special star, they put it all together and figured out that God was leading them to encounter the one that He promised to send in the Old Testament the Messiah. By God's grace, they figured that out. They were journeying to see, listen, the one they knew was the king of the Jews. And these wise men knew, you don't come to a king empty-handed. You don't just waltz into the presence of a king. You come prepared to pay homage You come ready to bow your knee. You come with a gift for that king. And so they brought with them gold and frankincense and myrrh, which I believe all those gifts have great uh, significance, symbolic significance. I talked about that last Christmas, so go look up those sermons. And they come with these gifts and... And they come into the place where Jesus was. I believe by that time, by the time they got there with their gifts, Jesus was a toddler, which is an amazing thought, right? Jesus is a toddler. He was. He was a toddler. And, and, and they, they come into the place where Jesus was. And they're not deterred by the, by the humble surroundings where Jesus lived. There's no opulence. He's just in an ordinary place. They're not deterred by the humble background of Mary and Joseph, they're not living in Herod's palace. 
Matter of fact, Joseph is a carpenter, a laborer. He's an ordinary man. And they're not deterred by that reality. They believed, based upon revelation God had given them, they believed that they were coming into the presence of a king. And they come with these gifts, and they get on their knees, and they pay homage to the king. Now they knew some things, but their knowing was limited. You and I know the rest of the story, right? Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary, fully God and fully man. And he grew in wisdom and knowledge and stature, favor with God and favor with men. He lived a perfect life. He never did a wrong thing. He never thought a wrong thought. He never said a a wrong word. Jesus Christ was perfection, fully obeying the law of God so that when he went to the cross, he would not have to go pay for his own sins. He could, as the the spotless Lamb of God, pay for our sins. Because on the cross, the Bible says he became sin for us. That's you and me. He took all of our sin on himself. And on the cross, he took the wrath of God, the punishment of God that we as guilty sinners deserve. He hung there from nine in the morning to three in the afternoon as our propitiation. Taking the full wrath of God in our place. He died on that cross and he was taken off the cross, wrapped in grave clothes and placed in a borrowed tomb. And early on Sunday morning, Jesus Christ defeated death and the grave when he rose. And he arose and appeared to his followers. And then he ascended to the Father, sitting at His right hand. And one day the Bible tells us very clearly, He will return. And when He comes back, He will set everything right. And everyone will recognize that Jesus Christ is King. We know the whole story, don't we? We have the completed canon of Scripture. So if those wise men, listen, if those wise men could bow their knee based upon their limited knowledge... How much more should we as Christ's followers, who not only know about Him, we know Him personally, how much more should we worship? How do you respond to a king who is a wonderful counselor? I hope you'll spend some time on your knees in His presence, praising His great name. Behold your king perfect in knowledge and wisdom. Worship your king. He is a worthy ruler. Third, listen, this is where it gets very practical. Petition your king for wise living. Petition your king for wise living. If Christ rules and reigns with perfect wisdom, if he has the wisdom to create everything, redeem lost sinners, and accomplish his plans in human history, don't you think that his wisdom might be a blessing to you. Don't you think that his wisdom might be something that you can glean from as a follower of King Jesus? 
if he is a wonderful counselor, if that's the kind of king that he is, then maybe his royal, his, his royal subjects, Christ's followers, those who are in the kingdom of God, maybe we should come to this king and seek his counsel. Right? Now let me tell you some resources that God has given you so that you can live a wise life. So that you can tap into the wisdom of the wonderful counselor. Number one, the Bible teaches you have the mind of Christ. Which means that you have the capacity to think and act like Jesus. 1 Corinthians 2 is about the plan of God. Eyes not seen, ears not heard. All that God has prepared for his people, those that know him, those that are saved. And it says at the end of that chapter that we have the mind of Christ. In other words, we're able to, to begin to wrap our minds around God's great plan and, and see things through, through, through Jesus' lenses. We're able to understand and, and look at things from Christ's perspective. We have the capacity, listen, to think like Jesus. You, as a Christ follower, have been given the mind of Christ. But that's not all. Not only do you have the mind of Christ, you have the truth of Christ, which gives you wisdom. Over in Psalm 19, verse 7, the Bible says, listen, the precepts of the Lord make wise the simple. And yes, the Bible calls us simple. How many of you realize you don't know everything? Raise your hand. We've all got a long way to go. And Psalm 19 reminds us that God has given us His Word to guide us. To give wisdom to those who need some, some knowledge. And need to make wise decisions. We have the Word of God. The Bible is an estimable gift from God. To give God's people wisdom. Third, you have the indwelling Spirit of Christ. When you were saved, the Bible says the Holy Spirit of God, the third person of the Trinity, came to live on the inside of you. And the Spirit of God, John 14, 26 says, leads us into the wisdom of Christ found in His teachings. So if you are saved, you have the mind of Christ, you have capacity, you have the teachings of Christ, the truth of the Word of God, and as you read the Word of God and engage the Word of God, the Spirit of God guides you into truth so you understand. So that mind of Christ is activated as you read by the Spirit of God. And not only that, here's another resource. Did you know that you have the ability to petition Christ for wisdom? I believe one of the most neglected verses in the Bible is found in James chapter 1, verse 5. And it's so simple. If anyone lacks wisdom, listen, let him, what? Ask. Let him ask. And the verse says that God will give that wisdom. Anyone out there need wisdom for life and living? Marriage, parenting, relationships, your career, finances, health, problems, crises. We need wisdom, don't we? Now, now come in real close. Don't raise your hand. Listen, but come in real close. 
knowing that you need wisdom desperately, how many of you last week asked God for wisdom? The Bible says, ask, and God will give you wisdom. So, so think about the resources that are at our disposal as followers of Christ to live a wise life. We have the mind of Christ, the Word of God, the Spirit of God, and prayer to ask for wisdom. That's incredible, right? But here's the key. Here's the question I have for you this morning. Do you yearn for His wisdom? Are you desperate for His wisdom? Because Psalm 111 verse 10 says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. In other words, when you understand that God is God and you are not, when you understand you don't have the answers, but He does, when you understand that He is a wonderful counselor, then when you fear Him, when you reverence Him, then you'll come to Him for wisdom. You have all these resources at your disposal. Do you want his wisdom? Do you yearn for his wisdom? Listen to me. If you don't yearn for his wisdom, you don't fear God. That's what Psalm 111 says. You don't fear God. Once we understand our need for wisdom, once we understand that our king is a wonderful counselor, we will go to him and let him use all of these resources in our life to guide us in life. So we should petition our king for wise living. Why? He's a wonderful counselor. But there's a final application here. A final answer to the question, how should we respond to this king? Behold your king in perfect knowledge and wisdom. Worship your king. He's worthy. Petition your king for wise living. But fourth, receive this king. He is a gift from God. Did you notice verse 6, how it begins in Isaiah 9? For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. In other words, this one that God would send from heaven to earth, born of the Virgin Mary, taking on humanity to live among us, this one who would be sent would be sent as a gift. He is a son that would be given. Which means, if Jesus Christ is a gift, then we've got to make a decision, right? We'll either receive him as a gift from God, embracing him as our personal Lord and Savior, or we'll ignore that gift. And think we don't need that gift. And could it be that you're here this morning and you've never received Jesus Christ as a gift from God? You have no assurance about eternity. You're far from God and you know it. You're headed for eternal destruction, separated from Him. And Isaiah 9-6 reminds you there is a gift available. How do we know that Jesus is a gift to be received? Well, it says here he's given. And in John 1.12, the Bible says, To as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to them that believe on his name. 
Jesus Christ is a gift that must be received, personally appropriated, if you want to enjoy His salvation. So I wonder if you're here today and you're far from God. And right now the Spirit of God is is convicting your heart, showing you you need Jesus. You need a Savior. In a few moments we're going to stand and sing and it's your opportunity to come to the front and say, wait, I need to be saved. And and we would love to sit down with you and walk you through some verses and answer your questions and, and, and be there in that moment when you call out upon Jesus by faith and receive Him as a free gift. The free gift of eternal life. I believe that's the reason that John 3.16 is such a popular verse. Where the Bible says, God so loved the world that He gave His only Son. That whosoever should believe in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. If you're here today and you're not saved, you need to understand God loves you. How do you know? Because He gave His only Son for you. You are greatly loved by God. But you must receive Him. You'll have that opportunity a little bit later in this service to make a public decision. And can I tell you this? Like I said a little bit earlier, if you know Jesus personally, Christmas is a a big deal. I'm, I'm telling you, Christmas is incredible when you know the gift. You've received the gift. We, we give gifts in our family, and we love to do that. And, and we, we tell our kids, we give gifts in recognition of the greatest gift that's ever been given. I'm telling you, Christmas will take on new meaning, new purpose, new joy in your life if you receive the gift of Jesus. So here's what I want you to walk away with today. Here's the, the point of this sermon. Christmas is the celebration of a good and great king who reigns with perfect knowledge and wisdom. As you engage this Christmas season, the songs, the parties, the special services, all of that, don't miss the fact that we are worshiping one who came, one who died, one who rose, and one who reigns. Christmas is that celebration of a great king. I want to close with this quote from J.I. Packer. It's a great quote. He writes, It is the Father's will that His enthroned Son, who now has the whole world in His hands, be the center of our thoughts and our devotions and our outlook on everything. That's what God desires. That you... Behold, and you worship, and you petition this great king who is the wonderful counselor.